Hello, this is Bob Groves, and welcome to the Provost podcast series that we call Faculty in Research. Today, I'm delighted to welcome Maggie Little, who is the Francis J. McNamara, Jr., Chair of Philosophy and also Senior Research Scholar at the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, but a whole lot of other things that we'll probably reveal in the course of this conversation. Her research interests include issues in reproduction, clinical research ethics, data ethics, and the structure of moral theory. She's a Rhodes Scholar and a fellow of the Hastings Center. She's twice served as visiting scholar in residence at the NIH Department of Bioethics. She is the co-founder of the Second Wave Initiative, which works to promote responsible research into the health needs of pregnant women. She has been the director of the Kennedy Institute of Ethics, one of the jewels in the crown of Georgetown, and during that time oversaw really transformative development, including the first MOOC in April of 2014, an introduction to bioethics out of the Kennedy Institute, Conversations in Bioethics, which is a really cool campus-wide event that focused on critical issues in bioethics, and then a whole bunch of other things. She also, and this is important, is the founder and, and guiding light and director of Ethics Lab, which is, I believe, a unique team of philosophers and designers at Georgetown University, we'll talk about this, that develops new methods to help people build ethical frameworks to better address real-world problems. It works to help surface the moral values at stake in emerging and complex issues, including data ethics and, and artificial intelligence, to help build, hopefully, responsible progress in those domains. And she is one of the founding co-chairs of the Tech and Society Initiative at Georgetown. So Maggie, I, I welcome you to this little podcast. We've been looking forward to this for some time. I think our, our listeners would be curious on when you discovered this gene in you that became fascinated with a set of moral philosophical issues. When did, when did you say, gee, that's something I can imagine doing for some extended period of time? Well, thanks, Bob. It is such a delight to be on your podcast. I've heard so many great things from other faculty colleagues, truly, who had said they enjoyed this so very much. So I was one of those weird kids, like age 14, I wondered, what are the foundations of morality? I'm confused. Or what do we owe one another? Or really good ones like, how do I really know you exist? And I grew up in Iowa. So this isn't, these weren't questions that were like covered in the high school. Maybe they are now. At any rate, I remember driving up to the University of Iowa, which is where we could afford to send me to go to college. In those days, you know, pre-internet, the course catalog was one of those, you know, printed behemoths of a book. I'm flapping through it as my mom uh, drives me home. And I come across literally the section called philosophy. And of course, I'd heard that word before and knew it was something. Of, but then I saw the names of the classes. And I said to my mom, I'm not alone. <laughs> so suddenly I, had I had discovered that there's a tribe of people who ask these really big, abstract, existential questions that probably don't have an answer, 
but we you know, need many of us to tussle with them and tussling with them can develop insights, right? That, that help from things ranging from, you know, how to build a just society all the way to how to think of getting the best out of AI and avoiding the worst. Nobody else I knew was really, really taken with this level of questions when you're like, whatever, a 10th grader. And I remember I get to the University of Iowa I, I signed up for intro to philosophy because I knew this was my place. And I had the loveliest teacher, Professor Howard Wetstein. I will always remember him. And I loved the class and I did well in the class. And he was sweet enough to follow me out after I handed in my final. It was a small class of 15. And he said, I, I want to just let you know, I hope you can take a couple more classes. You're really good at this. You know, I blush, I feel embarrassed looking back at it, but I looked up at him just completely naively and I said, oh, I'm going to become a philosophy professor. <laughs> and he he actually, he and I've talked over the years a little bit because I'd send him an email and say, hey, I'm in grad school. And then, hey, I got a job. And anyway, so, you know, those early experiences for me, it was somebody at the be- beginning of college, but just affirmed and saw me. But even then, as a first-year student, it seems like you had a set of confidence about your choice. I mean, that's an amazing thing. I, I don't think most academics would have chosen in first year their academic life. And so you were a philosophy major and all Philosophy of- major. And then actually was thinking of sort of taking a year break to in the, you know, quote unquote, real world to do some policy work. Because even early on, I was really interested in how these foundational ideas could sort of help the world in some way. But then I ended up getting a scholarship um, to go to Oxford. So, and I'd wanted to go to grad school. So I skipped the gap year, kept going. And then from there went to a PhD and, and then was super lucky enough to get a job. You know, they're, they're not guaranteed. So yeah, yeah, I found Georgetown, which was, I mean, that talk about a home. Yeah. Uh, I'm sure people are interested in the roads. So that's probably a rare event for the University of Iowa. Yes. Uh, tell us what you remember about that whole process. I remember buying the interview dress with my mom. <laughs> <laughs> that took a lot of effort. That's one of the memories. The whole process was super lovely. The interview process can be really different depending on the district you're going through. And the district I went through at the time, uh, at the time had the most lovely interviewers who were just supportive, but you know, fascinated and asked great questions. I remember when they announced my name thinking, I've never been outside of the country. I hadn't been to Canada at that point. So my very first international flight was flying over the pond and landing in England where fortunately people did speak English, but unfortunately they put peas on top of their pizza in in that day. Yeah. (laughs) Amazing. Amazing. You know, what's the most exciting stuff you're doing right now? What gets you up in the morning? What do you find yourself thinking about at odd moments, even when you don't have to? It's just something that's pecking away at your consciousness. Well, I can start with sort of a, a place where it happens, which is you mentioned Ethics Lab. And that is really a joyful place for me, precisely because it does really, really rigorous philosophy, but alongside designers who know how to build things for the real world with in high constraints. So I mentioned that because it's a place where all my current three in the morning thoughts kind of get to take life in, in the next day. So one of the most exciting things that I'm, I'm doing with the lab, but it's the culmination of 20 years, probably research work, is uh, what you mentioned about doing research with pregnant women. So background for the audience 
pregnant women get ill, ill women get pregnant, and you have to treat them to help the health of the mother and the baby, but we don't have a good evidence base for it because people shy away from doing the needed research. So uh, a group of colleagues and I started an initiative to how can we make progress on that like 20 years ago? Well, it turns out it's ethically very complex because you, I mean, for obvious reasons, uh, and yet it's really needed. So that's just the kind of question I love thinking about where you have to kind of figure out new frameworks to be super responsible, but do things that are needed. And fast forward to now with the lab, we're working with a, a small biopharmaceutical startup that thinks they may have the cure for preeclampsia, which anybody who's watched out in Abbey <laughs> will sort of know uh, women and their babies die from this. And uh, especially around the globe where they're in low resource settings, it's really uh, very deadly. Anyway, so they approached ethics lab because they need help kind of navigating this complex ethical terrain. And I was saying to the team the other day, if if this ends up working, it will literally be the proudest thing in my career. <laughs> so the idea of an academic helping to do something that could save millions of lives is pretty heady stuff. You know, every every field, as I see it anyway, as provost, uh, has some internal division between theory development and application where it promulgates this, I think, illusion that academics aren't interested in having impact in the real world. What's your current view of the discipline of philosophy on that dimension? I love my discipline. I love my people. And it's been fabulous to watch. And I'd say the last 15 years, especially, the, the field has really taken a turn toward engagement with the world, being more applied out in the world, more doing more public philosophy, you know, engaged in very naughty questions around the environment, say, or things like tech ethics. So that's been very exciting and has drawn more people into the field, even as some philosophers do and should continue to do really foundational research. Every discipline, you know, needs some people doing super foundational and also a robust group doing applied and then people actually out kind of building things like, you know, making the vaccine and not just doing the research. Mm -hmm. Do you see this affecting curricula? Oh, yes. To give an example, the philosophy department at Georgetown, so Georgetown has this, you know, deep commitment that every undergraduate uh, should take an ethics class, which is one of the reasons I love Georgetown. And if you were to look through the courses offering to satisfy that curriculum, you know, in the last 20 years, the proportion that are really about, you know, wonderful topics like what Plato thought or John Stuart Mill, which is really cool. But the proportion that now are, we have also offerings on very applied topics, uh, bioethics, so that the pre-med students go and get their ethics education about the field they're about to go into. Well, just from my perspective, Ethics Lab is, you gave an example of its potential contribution to all of humankind, but it's also been quite useful internally for building new curricular approaches. You want to give us a couple examples of that? Yeah. So one of the missions of Ethics Lab is to kind of be an engine for innovative pedagogy and kind of rapidly developing courses on complex issues that the students will face when they leave the front gates and giving them philosophy tools, concepts, frameworks, but that are really curated to be useful on those problems. And then also, if it's a technical area like AI, we integrate the ethics 
into their understanding of how the thing actually works. We get under the hood of, of the details. So one of the missions is to do that highly applied stuff. But another feature is that the methods we use really do involve design methodology. So we are super lucky in our team. Everything is team designed. We meet and brainstorm about what would what are the learning goals and how they, could they be achieved in non-traditional ways, but still rigorous, like students doing projects and we bring outside people in to do crits <laughs> or tabletop exercises. And you know, we have amazing graphic designers. So the, the collateral we produce is inspiring. I'd like you to go back in time when you got your first job as a post-PhD and, and you were faced with juggling three balls, uh, teaching uh, your own scholarship and service to the community and, and your profession too. We have multiple duties usually. Reflecting back on those times, how did you work out the juggling of those three duties? I mean, it's a lifelong challenge. I think it's been a process. The first couple of years that I had a job, I, I made it a sort of policy to presumptively say yes to anything that came along. Opportunities to teach a new class, to co-author with a colleague, to join a committee. If somebody asked, it wasn't an automatic yes, but I had my default setting to yes. And that helped me build a lot of skills because you know the skills you have to do a dissertation will get you so far. And then tried to be pretty intentional at then moving to a stage of having pretty explicit criteria of what I thought my value add where it was located most and the things that made me come alive. And then as my career matured, um, anybody who's who's been at this business long enough and you know this, Bob, the, the requests are so big that it's not about how many you say no to, it's about how many you say yes to and you only get so many slots. So then I really sat down one day and thought about how many slots do I have? What are the different kinds of work I wanna do that keep me feeling balanced and sustained? And that make me be a good citizen and have have some fun. And then I had a template to take to that stream of requests. And I got really good at the warm no is the other thing. Oh, that sounds amazing. I wish you such luck. I can't help you. <laughs> uh, yeah. So it sounds like this was quite intentional at a certain moment. You realize you you needed a structure to make the decisions on what to do and what not to do and how to allocate your time. Very interesting. Well, Maggie, I want to thank you for this chat we had. It was delightful, and uh, I join many others in admiring what you are doing, what you have done for Georgetown. So thanks for spending some time with us. Right back at you, Bob. Thanks so much.